Hey folks, this is Dr. Rob, and welcome to Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction, a podcast brought to you by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs and hosted by me and my sidekick, Tammy. Say hi, Tammy. Hi, Dr. Rob. Thank you. Our show provides useful answers to your most asked questions about cheating, betrayal, and addiction. Let's get started. When I discovered my husband's addiction, he was watching incest porn, also at the same time calling, texting my cousin's wife and daughter. I believe he was acting out, or at least trying to act out, uh, what he was watching. Your thoughts? Of course, he says that wasn't the case. Of course. Well, I'm first of all, I'm very sad for you that there are many issues that I hear about that worry spouses. You know, you had sex without protection, and then you came home to me. You had an affair and you gave that person money. Um, You got arrested for seeing sex workers. You know, all of those things are horrifying and difficult. But this, the idea that that you are looking at something that is so um, heinous, that is so uh, scary, um, I'm deeply concerned. And so uh, I have had a patient recently who was doing things like this, going into people family members apartments and watching you know incest porn and all that stuff and um i think it is a much more difficult issue than you're describing um i would be deeply concerned i would be cautious you know i'm not saying this person's into children although i wonder how old your cousin's daughter is um and i agree with you i don't know if he was acting out but there was something in his head about you know play with this see where it goes you know So to me, I think that the two of you should go to an extremely well-trained therapist and sit down and talk about this. And I mean, someone who knows their stuff, your average therapist, well, people look at everything and you, you need someone like we would recommend. And I say that because Tammy and I've been doing this for 20 years. We know we either trained or worked with trainings with almost everyone who's licensed out there. So we don't get kickbacks. But Tammy does make referrals because I believe that she really knows who she's talking about. Uh, And it is T-A-M-I at SeekingIntegrity.com. But um, I don't believe him um, because when you're looking at incest porn, all bets are off about what, you know, it's like looking at child porn. You may say, I'm absolutely not interested. I would never want, I'm sorry, but if we have kids and I may not be worried about the kids, but I might be worried about the babysitter, you know, so this, this is very serious. I think this goes beyond do I believe him or not. I think this goes into I am so disturbed about this that I want us to sit down with a professional knows what they're doing and talk about it. Um, this is not minor. This is one of those major ones. And I'm sorry. And especially if he's a sex addict, um, that means we are impulsive and we do things without thinking. And that's not fine, but it's doesn't cause the same harm if I impulsively look at porn in a way that you might run into. However, if I impulsively try to initiate an incestuous relationship, that's uh, much more serious and something that I would want to attend to right away. And even within the qualified professionals, that's a, that's a different level. I just, really, I mean, yeah, that, that, that is. So I want you to, you know, I mean, I do get you know, calls about that. So, okay. Next question, Dr. Rob, I'm the betrayed partner. I lost a lot. My partner, my home, my our future together, and I'm going through grief. I'm doing self-care and I have a lot of support. Can you comment on forgiveness and the grief process? Any advice for getting through those aspects of this experience? Well, um, 
I mean, there's a lot of grieving here. You've lost your whole life. You know, as adults, our home, our partners, our futures. I mean, that's so all I can say to you is to be kind with yourself about the grief because it's going to be a while. And I really caution you to be kind to yourself about this issue of remorse, because one of the hardest things I think when you're grieving is when you start saying, I wish I'd done it this way. I wish I'd done it that way. I wish I'd said this. Maybe if I'd done this, this was going, if this was going to happen, this was going to happen. It had nothing to do with what you said or did. If I love you and I'm pissed at you, I love you and I'm pissed at you, but I don't destroy our lives. You know, that means I was going to destroy our lives anyway. Um, as far as forgiveness, a couple of things. Number one, well, I was in therapy years and years ago. I don't know if I ever told you this, Tammy. And one of the clients in that therapy group, it wasn't me, but I was in the group, said I was incested by a parent. And I'm wondering how I can come to forgiveness. And what the therapist said is, you know, that person absolutely deserves forgiveness, but you may not be the one who has to give it to them. And we don't have to forgive everyone and everything. What we can do is, um, is find forgiveness within ourselves for having walked through that experience. But you may never speak to him again because of what he's done. And I could understand that. However, um, I, I have something interesting, Tammy and I have talked about this. I wanted to do a forgiveness course because forgiveness is fascinating, um, at least to me, because there are many, you may not know this, there are lots of books on grief, but there are also lots of books about forgiveness. And it's fascinating to me as a therapist because forgiveness isn't just, I forgive you. It's different stages of a long process like grief. You know, in grief, we bargain, we get angry, and then we, then we get depressed, and then we go back to being in shock. And there are all these stages that we go in and out of. And there are also stages of forgiveness. And what I would really encourage you to do, honestly, is go get a book or, or go online and find out about the stages of forgiveness. See where you are in that process. Maybe you're at the very beginning. Maybe you haven't started. Maybe you're further along than you think. I don't know. But I think when I can see myself and where I kind of fit in, it makes it a lot easier for me to look ahead at how I might get to where I want to get to. So I will say that there are some things that you don't ever have to forgive. You can come to peace at it with it and say, let someone else forgive them. And it's really useful, you know, and, and I'm deeply sorry that you're in this situation. That's what I want to say. It's very sad for me. And I, we both are a process for me. Forgiveness is, um, so, when I was early in recovery, lots of resentments. Um, uh, somebody said, "You're you you are letting that person live rent free in your head," and I hated that. And so, what I had to do was forgive them, but it was really for me. It you know I I don't even think I don't even think I, they even knew or I had I don't think I ever talked to them about any of that. It was really. Um, the resentments and what I need to do for myself. But it definitely is a process too, because like things that I thought I'd let go, you know, like then could pop back up, you know, and I had to, to work the process again, but being um, gentle with you, uh, being kind, understanding that it's a process. It isn't going to be that magically one day, oh, poof, it's all gone. It, you know, there will be, there'll be moments, um, but but there'll also be, you know, more sunshine than gray clouds. So, so I think, you know, appreciate those moments and, but then just go, you know, I have the support. I'm going to lean in, lean into the support is, um, is so good. I'm so glad you've got the support. So. 
I want to add one thing to that about mm -hmm. dealing with grief. Put away all the pictures of the two of you together. Put away all of the letters that were written to you. It's not, you know, put it all in a box and put it in the garage or put it up on a shelf. It's not that you won't want to revisit those moments, but right now when you're in grief, it it it's just like a constant pain. It's like pulling on a scab, excuse my language. You don't need to see a picture of the two of you every time you walk in the living room. You know, it, it, it it's in your mind. So, you know, what I say to friends, because we do like, we revisit and we think about it. We obsess and, you know, ruminate. you're never going to get out of it. Ruminate. Ruminate. What a wonderful word. So the more you can get it out of your life, just, you know, have a, go bring a friend over and say, let's go through the house and take out some of the reminders of the relationship so that I don't have to think about it all the time. I don't run into them and let's put them in the box and let me give you the box and put it in the garage. That is one way to help you tolerate and manage grief. Concrete. Next question. My husband has done everything he can to help me heal. He has been sober for almost two years, verified by polygraph. He leans in when I lean out. We have done two intensives and both in SA groups along with couples counseling, but I am still stuck. I have not forgiven, nor do I trust him. He's doing everything possible. Um, what is a fair amount of time before calling it quits? Discovery was 11 months ago. Well, Tammy, um, I want to ask you, so discovery, just to clarify for the group, discovery means I found something and I discovered what was going on. Disclosure is I'm in a formal therapeutic process going through what went on. So what I hear here from what I, I guess they're done. I'm confused because it says he's been sober two years, but you didn't find out until 11 months ago. So, I mean, is that what you're reading too? That's what it says. Yeah. But I think that's really not the question. And so, you know, we okay. could, the reason I brought that up, and I think Tammy's responding, is it has to do with time. You know, 11 months, when you just discovered 11 months ago, but you hadn't really started a process together or, if he, you know, that, um, that's too soon. Because if I find out in November and then I, we finally get into some therapy or I get into some 12-step or we all start working together in February, then it's a year from February. So, yeah, they did a dis uh, disclosure, I think is what they In August. Oh, yeah. So a formal intensive discovery was in August. So it's not a formal intensive discovery. It's a formal intensive disclosure. So that's what the confusion. Okay. So, so the disclosure was 11 months mm -hmm. ago. That makes more sense. So, but I yes. really want to say something about calling it quits and not being able to get past your anger and stuff. Okay. So it's, it's actually fairly simple. And again, you know, I was saying on the podcast the, earlier today, that I really am a straight shooter, as you know, Tammy. So I will say things that I believe are true, whether they make you comfortable or not. In a therapy setting, I might be more gentle. I might, but if you're asking me questions here, I'm going to be honest. That's my job. So let me answer this question in an honest way, uh, except now it disappeared. Um, it's, it's in it the answer. Yeah. So um, this is my experience. Um, up to a year after formal disclosure, when my spouse is doing everything right, you know, my addict, they're going to meetings, they're going to therapy. I really think they're sober. After about a year, if my anger continues, what happens is it becomes counterproductive because now the addict is being the person that I want them to be. They are working on it. And I don't have to say, good for you, you're doing great. But to continue to feel rage or attack, do tirades or go through everything they own, then becomes pushing them away. So, you know, I think that 
I think you have to decide if you want to be in this relationship or not. I think it's as simple as that. Is this something you want to fight for? Or is this something you want to let go of? I don't know that it necessarily at this point has to do with they did this and I did that. And it's really more in here. It's really, you know, you did this, but you're working on it. Now, I will say this, and I rarely say this, but I think that, you know, I don't want any spouse to feel like your anger has anything to do with your past. That's why we're at pro-dependence. You have every right to be angry because of what you're going through. But when it go, when you're all, when you're both working on it, and you're really sincere and you're doing your best and you're getting the two years, you know, it may well be that you, it is time to end the relationship or you're going to have to do some work on yourself because that's when it gets to, he's doing everything he can and I think I have been, but I still have these feelings. Um, I don't know why you still have them. I agree with you. It isn't healthy for the relationship, especially for him if he's trying really hard and doing all the right stuff. So um, some relationships are not meant to work out. Um, and I can't answer that for you. Only you can answer. Here's a really dumb question. Okay, this is a really dumb question. Do you love him? Do you want to spend the rest of your life with him? You know, that's really the bottom line. And um, uh, I was going to say something about that. I mean, even you spouses who are deeply hurt and deeply angry and deeply wounded, if we, many of you, if we got to the bottom line would be, I still love them. And every time I talk about this, I really believe this. So I want you guys to hear that if you're, you know, if you're all 52 of you, the opposite of love is not hate. If you hate them, you are still passionately engaged. The opposite of love is indifference. If you really don't care what they do, if it really doesn't matter what, you know, that is the opposite of love. And when someone has pulled away and no longer feels that intensity at either end, love, hate, and they haven't moved back to a comfortable place, it may well be that they are not going to continue. Um, and tell me, by the way, we've run into this with couples who, Yes, they moved out for eight months or a year, but now it's going on two years and they're still living separately. It's kind of the same thing. It's like, you know, you're either in or you're not. And I certainly wouldn't want to leave him feeling like he needs to do one more thing if he's really doing all the right stuff. So, by the way, talk to him about it. Tell him I'm ambivalent. I don't know what to do. I, I want to move on, but I can't. I mean, this is the kind of communication that is important for you to do in order to promote wherever your relationship is going. So a couple of things, Eddie Caparucci did a really good webinar on this uh, recently. So it's on sexandrelationshiphealing.com. No, that one. No, the, yes. <laughs> I'll get it right eventually. Um, under, the, under the resources, you'll see previously recorded. And, and he did a really good one about you know, partners being stuck. So, so perhaps um, uh, check that out. I think taking the temperature on, you know, where are you? If you're on the indifferent... If you leave, here's the only thing I'm going to say. If you leave, please do the work for you to heal so that you aren't carrying that forward into a future relationship. So please do what you need to do for you in or out of the relationship. So um, because otherwise it's the baggage that gets dragged along, you know, and three relationships later, you know, it's still a hundred pounds of garbage you're carrying. So um, I want to add one more thing to that. Mm -hmm. I mean, we got a whole lot of answers to this is that um, uh, don't stay because you're afraid of what might happen if you don't. It's not fair to me if you're sitting around deciding, well, I'm not sure if I'll be with someone again, or do I want to go live with a grandkid or whatever it is. You have to envision what you want for yourself. 
separate from whether we're going to stay together or not. If you're sitting around waiting for your life to begin now that you've staying together or you're not, you need to begin your life now. And I, I'm sure you have a life, but I mean, start your interests, start your fun, start the things that you need to know that are good for you. I think it's a lot easier to look back. Uh, it's like retirement. If you do nothing but work, it's very hard to think about not working because you have nothing else in your life. I have a friend who is going to retirement, but he's really into ceramics. And he goes to the studio every day and he's turning pots and he's, and he even said to me the other day, you know, I never thought about retirement, but now that I'm sitting here with the, I can see myself moving into this thing that's really fun. And I thought, whoa, I wish I had that <laughs> because it gives you a vision for who you might be outside of, and I don't care if it's work or the relationship, it's still about that's where I'm headed and not just about what I'm coming out of. So there's a little therapy trick for you. Okay. Next question. Hello, Dr. Rob. I'm a PA and sober for almost six months. Yay. Mostly doing meetings from Seeking Integrity. How important is it to have a community of men to talk to and connect with and to share not only recovery, but relationship issues, divorce groups, and so on? How do you know which groups are helpful and evidence-based? That's a lot of questions. Okay. Yeah. Um, can we go through those one at a time? Sure. How important is it to have a community of men to talk to and connect with and to share not only recovery, but relationship issues, divorce groups, and so on. So okay. to connect it with them. It is as for important, all. sorry, it is as important as having your heart beat. If your heart stops beating, you're not going to live. If you don't deeply engage in social and structured relationships with people who have similar issues for you, and not for a month or two, but for years and years and years, Number one, it's not good for your relationship because you put all the emphasis on that to get your needs met. And it's not good if you're single because part of what we need to learn in recovery is how to have meaningful, deep, non-sexual relationships. Um, sex is so easy to run to, but what, what it makes also easy is I don't have to talk to you. I don't have to get to know you. I don't have to fear you're going to leave me. I don't have to see if you like me or not because you're, we're just going to have sex. What is meaningful is, is trying out, exploring, and creating meaningful, deep relationships, especially with people of the same issue as you do. So I don't know if Tammy would go that far, but I think if you want to stay in recovery, that being engaged in meaningful social support is like your heart beating or not. And we'll, uh, that's one of the answers. Do you, Tammy, do you have a comment on that? I 100% agree. Like, th there's no way I could have done this recovery thing without a whole bunch of people to show me and connect with me and give me their life experience. And it was about all the other stuff. So I, I mentioned it earlier. Stopping the behavior is the very basic. That's the first thing. That's the, you know, that's the symptom. It's addressing all that other stuff. So yeah, like I need to talk to people about, you know, life and how do I do life? Because that was what got me in trouble before. I didn't know how to do that. So getting the help to do that um, from other people who are on the path and they get me, like they get me. I don't have to explain myself, you know, normal quote unquote people. Like I think differently than them. It's challenging. So, I mean, I can, I can do that, but, you know, really just being grounded with, with other people in recovery that were trying just like me to do life differently was so important. I, you know, uh, Dr. Rob talked about his friend doing ceramics. When I first got into recovery, like I had my little social group of people in recovery and we went, I lived in Michigan. We went cross country skiing. We went roller skating. We went bowl. We did stuff because my life was all focused on addiction before I needed to learn how to do life in, you know, and I had fun doing different things and, and really 
it was whatever we were doing was an activity, but really what it was, was connecting with other people in a meaningful way. And I want to build on that briefly. You heard, we, we were asked about attachment earlier. So I grew up learning to do it on my own. Don't ask anyone for help. Um, don't be vulnerable, handle, you know, all that. And one of the things I think is very important about going to these groups and organizations is that I have to be, I'm forced to be a part of. I am forced to, I mean, you're, I'm in this environment. People are going to talk to me. I'm going to talk to them. So that whole thing that addicts avoid about turning to others, leaning on others, this is a big part of it is regaining the pieces that are missing. Now, I'm never going to go back and be four again and innately believe that others will be there for me. But imagine the home, well, I'll just say, I grew up in a home where if I said, hey, dad, let me tell you what's going on with me at school. My father would say, oh, I'm sure that's interesting, but let me tell you about me. And so I learned there was no point in looking for validation because I was not going to get it. But when I go to a 12-step meeting and I say something interesting, fun, useful, part of recovery, people come up to me and they say, that was really interesting or good for you or let's go to coffee. It's the exact opposite experience that I grew up with. And while it won't change my brain entirely, it does become more and more reliable in my brain that I, I can turn to people and they are going to be there. And I have this bunch of people that I know are safe and I know I can turn to. And really it is part of the brain healing, in my opinion, the more you show up and engage, the more likely to show up and engage. So that's question number one. The next question is how do you know which groups are helpful and evidence-based? So try, try different groups and evidence-based. I read a study and it was, it was probably a year or two ago about 12 step and like, and it, it's the most effective, probably because it's the most available, you know, it, it's got a proven track record, but you can't, well, you can, but um, I always encourage people to go to multiple meetings and like every 12 step group, you know, e e even if it's AA, every location has a personality. So you go until you find the personalities that you like, and then you know, like I had to go find it. I moved, you know, to Arizona. I had to go find a home group and I went to a bunch of them and it's kind of like dating. You try a bunch of them and you go, I like this one. And so I kept coming back. And so, you know, and it's, so you have to keep trying, but, but as far as helpful, the ones you, it's like exercise, you know, which, which form of exercise is the most um, beneficial, the one you keep doing. Right. Go for a walk. I did want to say something, Tammy, and I know we've talked about this. How long have you been in alcohol and drug recovery? 10 years, 20 years, a bunch of years, more than 10? Do you really more want me to 10. say? More, no, yeah, I mean, yeah, not okay. if you feel embarrassed. Well, no. Okay. I just had my recovery birthday and I probably, yeah, 41 years. I just got my, okay. yeah, 41 So years. let me say yeah. something. Tammy's been doing this for 41 years. And yet, and I hope she doesn't mind my saying this, sometimes she has a bad day and or a bad week and i have been on the phone with, or talking to her like this where she said you know i think i need to go to a meeting just to get my head clear just to and this is 41 years later i don't know that tammy goes four days a week but yeah. she knows that that's the place where yeah. and i have to say when i go to a meeting now after all these years i don't necessarily even listen to everything i feel this sense of meditation and peace just by showing up there um, because it's such a habit to go to that place to be at peace um, so someone said, I do want to read this, find your group, find out where you belong. It applies to spouses to find people who lift you up, validate you. All groups are not equal. And I'll say one more thing about that. Um, you have to go for a while. You know, Tammy said, go to this one, go to that one. She's right, but not just once. 
because I will go to a 12-step meeting and I guarantee you, I will find the people who do the worst stuff that I would never think of doing that really hurt people sexually. And I'll think, oh, I'm not like them. So I don't belong here. You have to look for the people who are similar to you and are struggling with the same things as you to begin to feel like you belong. Um, And in order to do that, you have to go, they say, six or more times. So you got to go to a a single meeting, maybe if you can tolerate it, if you feel comfortable, a bunch of times. And guess what? You're going to start knowing people and they're going to start, you know, but anyway, I I And I think the details are details. I listen to, can I relate to that person's pain? Can I relate to that person's, like they're struggling with whatever, like, you know, the Mm. the sorrow, the anger, the whatever. Can I, can I relate to that? Because the details of what happened or whatever, you know, I, I won't line up exactly like that, but I can relate on the feeling level. And if I can start relating on the feeling level, guess what? I can connect with that person. So yeah, I want to say something about that. That's one of the reasons the treatment works so well. I mean, I want a reminder, we do run a treatment center. It's called Seeking Integrity. It's out here in California. We treat male sex addicts and men who have combined sex and drug issues. Um, why did I bring that up, Tammy? I'm getting old. I forgot that up. But anyway, um, by the way, connecting with people. Who, yeah, the guys and who we're going to treatment center. Yes, I'll we're going to answer one more question. Okay. okay. All right. Is it common for porn sex addicts to want sex with their spouse in places such as outside or while out of town in places where others are in the same room or house, et cetera? Well, I think it's common for sex addicts to do all kinds of things that increase the intensity, um, increase the, um, the, the chance of getting in trouble or caught because that increases the intensity. But I think you know what I hear is exhibitionism. That's what I hear. That's now, I used to have sex in public it. places because that was where I picked people up and we would go hide in a corner and have sex. That was, you know, 30 years ago in a different world. But I wasn't seeking to be seen outside having sex. I was going to the places where I knew people were to have sex. So, and I didn't want to go inside with them. I just want to have sex and leave. So, but it wasn't that I wanted to go outside and be seen or risk being seen. And because that feels very exhibitionistic. And it would make me very uncomfortable if someone were pulling me into that. So I don't know whether the, I don't know about the sex addiction piece, you know, because but that's more of a of a sexual uh, problem uh, because and why is it a problem? Because you can get arrested for it. <laughs> that's I know it's a problem. So I would be concerned that my spouse wants to put us in dangerous or problematic situations in order to enjoy sex. Yes, men like stimulation. We like new stimulation. You know, um, however, that kind of stimulation is not only not good for you, but it's illegal. And I would probably stop at that point. Thank you for listening to this episode of Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction. If our words have led you to seek help, please reach out. You can always find us at www.seekingintegrity.com.